Alan Jones, direct to the people, right across Australia. Yes, it's me. I'm back and I'll be more accessible than ever. Here we are. This digital television show will air at 8pm Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time, Monday to Thursday. It's easy to watch. There are three ways. We all have devices, whether it be a smartphone, everyone's got one of those, an iPad, a smart TV or a laptop. So you can watch on my Alan Jones Australia Facebook page, my YouTube page or the website. This is simple. Alan Jones .com.au. Now it's really easy. There it is on the screen. You can see it. You can watch the program. You can read my editorial comment. You can make your own comments. And you can see it all on my Facebook page, Alan Jones Australia. It is that easy. And you can share my content with your friends and family, which I encourage you to do. We are in critical times. Believe me, we've become a nation of one idea. There's no debate. You're not allowed to have an alternative viewpoint from that fed to us by the establishment forces wherever they are in our country. Politicians who've never read a book in their lives are dictating to us and trying to silence anyone who disagrees with them. Well, they won't silence you or me. And this is the good news. The you and the me's of this world actually vote. On this digital television program, we'll continue to speak the truth no matter how uncomfortable it may be, and we'll talk about the things that you care about. It's not about me, it is about you. I'll continue unapologetically to represent your views. So here we are. The first program of Alan Jones, Direct to the People. You'll find me 8 o'clock, Monday to Thursday. And if you miss the program, don't stress, the full show podcast of the nightly program will be available the following day at 6am. And in addition... Our company, Australian Digital Holdings, will be launching a separate daily Alan Jones 7am comment. So, keep up the fight. We're still here, but we're doing it digitally and we'll be everywhere. And tinier politicians won't be able to ignore this force because you all vote. We'll be more relevant than ever. And remember, you can email me on your say via my website. Just go to alanjones.com.au. Your comments are there. And now the PR is over, OK? Let's get into it. Well, there can be no more important time than now to give voice to opinions that some people might not be comfortable with. I'll come to that in a moment, as I said. We all need a motive for what we're doing. I've been reminded of the words of General Douglas MacArthur, who said, and I quote, Years may wrinkle the skin, but to give up interest wrinkles the soul. You're as young as your faith, as old as your doubt. As young as your self-confidence, as old as your fear. As young as your hope as old as your despair. In the central place of every heart, there's a recording chamber. So long as it receives messages of beauty, hope, cheer and courage, so long are you young. But when your heart is covered with the snows of pessimism and the ice of cynicism, then and then only are you grown old. And then indeed, as the ballad says, you just fade away. General Douglas MacArthur. We have no intention of fading away, I can tell you, but if we are as young as our hope and as old as our despair, then this program will always breathe hope and banish despair. But sometimes hope derives from understanding some ugly realities that have created the sense of despair. You see, one question emerges above all others. Do we really think Australia today is what we want Australia to be? One of the real tragedies is that I've got young people saying to me, Alan, you've enjoyed the best of it. Well, our obligation is to make sure that's not the, the case. 
Nonetheless, we saw through coronavirus, didn't we, an appalling pile-on of alarmism, fear and, yes, despair. The nation lost its confidence. Metaphors of pessimism were everywhere. Socially distanced. You can't swim in the ocean. One of the healthiest of pastimes. You couldn't even say goodbye to departing loved ones. You couldn't leave your own country. We were told Queensland hospitals were for Queenslanders. The Constitution guarantees trade and movement across borders. Oh, rip up the Constitution. We're a country of 25.5 million people. All these months on, we've had about 230,000 cases, which is well below 1% of the population. The deaths are a little over 2,000, which is 0.008% of the population. Deaths, 0.008%. What are we on about? As the brilliant Adam Crichton wrote from America this week, quote, it's been 21 months of rolling restrictions in what can be described only as the greatest and arguably one of the most destructive obsessions in world history, given the economic and social chaos governments have caused, unquote. While having closed and destroyed businesses, put people out of work, damaged perhaps permanently the education of our children and unleashed several levels of mental ill health that the nation has never seen, this is not the Australia we want. The political responses were beyond anything contemplated during war, during the Spanish flu, during the swine flu. Yet these same political responses cultivated fear, took away hope, denied optimism and fertilised pessimism. I was some sort of pariah when I cited expert after expert. Professor David Katz, the founding director of the Yale University Prevention Research Centre. What would he know, eh? He said, quote, I'm deeply concerned that the social, economic and public health consequences of this near total meltdown of normal life will be long-lasting and calamitous, possibly graver than the direct toll of the virus itself. He said the unemployment, impoverishment and despair likely to result will be public health scourges of the first order, unquote. So it proved to be. I cited Professor John Ioannidis, the Professor of Epidemiology and Population Health at Stanford University. Would he know a touch more than these so-called chief medical officers whose advice was treated with biblical truth? Professor Ioannidis said, and I quoted this often, in order to dismantle alarmism and the pessimism and the fear and the despair. He said, quote, if we'd not known about a new virus out there and had not checked individuals with PCR tests, the number of total deaths due to influenza-like illness would not seem unusual. At most, he said, we might have noted that flu this season seemed to be a bit worse than average, but the media coverage, he said, would have been less than for an NBA game between the two most indifferent teams, unquote. My point is, we've lost the quintessential Australian characteristics of optimism, fun, the sharing of stories, offering one's own opinions without fear of being cancelled. Older Australians know that we've had challenges in the past far greater than that of a coronavirus. We got through them because we shared with one another. We didn't divide against one another. We had common values and the joys of a free society. Now you'd be hard-pressed to get a politician to tell you what those values are. Do we believe in democracy anymore? Hardly. Parliaments were closed down. The so-called advice was never debated. We certainly don't believe in freedom of speech. You're actually frightened to say what you think. Do we do things for the community as well as for ourselves? I spoke at a function two weeks ago in a beautiful part of Australia, Echuca, in northern Victoria, across the Murray River, not far from another lovely spot called Kahuna. I had just come out of hospital, but I had a commitment 
one essential Australian value is that you honour your commitments. I had spinal surgery on the Monday. I caught the plane on the Saturday. And along with four of the wonderful Australians, went to Echuca to raise money for two childcare centres. There was a magnificent gala dinner. And you see those pictures there. Couldn't believe it. They couldn't they believe it. The Ritz. They outreached well, the Ritz. I opened by asking if there was any person amongst the 250 there who was not frightened of saying what they thought. You think about it. This is Australia today. People frightened to say what they think. How did it come to this? Daniel Wilde, in a recent outstanding essay, quoted the 19th century French aristocrat and diplomat Alexis de Tocqueville, arguing in his essay, Democracy in America, that the effect of censorship is that, quote, the majority feeling isolated begin to retreat into silence rather than speak out for what it mistakenly thinks is a minority view, unquote. That's where we are. Public debate's not only censured, but almost forbidden. Remember when Pauline Hanson wasn't allowed into a public hall to express her views? Australians feel powerless in the face of all of this, in the face of being silenced. The fact that Australians don't approve of the direction their country is taking can be seen in the opinion polls. Almost two-thirds of Australians want neither political party. The Liberal Party, the alleged home of conservatism and economic management, is running our country towards $1 trillion of debt. Yet how can tomorrow's generation improve things when activists are in control of the education curriculum, influencing the content, often trash content, taught to every child in Australia. Then, along with cancel culture and people frightened to say what they think, we've got identity politics, with not the suggestion, but the affirmation, as if it were true, that we are a country that bases its decisions on race and gender and ethnicity. And this is being taught in schools. Why wouldn't people feel two things? One, this is not the Australia we want our country to be. And secondly, if we don't address these issues and protect what the majority know is the rightful way of life in this country, then hope will give way to despair. The final sobering thought, the coalition's been in government in our country for about 75% of the time since World War II. Yet here we are, where we are today. Conservatives, this is tonight's message, have to stand up and be heard. There is nothing wrong with being a conservative. Indeed, most Australians are radical conservatives, radical enough to know what needs to be changed and unapologetically determined to conserve the institutions and values and systems that once made us the envy of the world but now are progressively being dismantled. As one of the country's finest Australians, Tony Abbott, once said, if the silent majority remains silent, it can't remain a majority, unquote. This program will continue to offer a voice to the silent majority in the hope that it will cease being silent and remain a majority. Look, just before we go any further, I'm certain that everyone watching me now could provide a list as long as your arm, wherever you are in Australia, of the incompetence, extravagance and waste of government. Only yesterday, people were talking to me about the public transport... <laughs> You've got to laugh. It's not laughable. In Sydney public transport in Sydney. I mean, this defies belief in the realm of incompetence and waste. Let's start with the Inner West Light Rail from Central Station to Dulwich Hill via Piermont and Leichhardt. They're only about 10 years old. However, the system is now shut down for 18 months. The trams have cracks in them, defects that should not exist. Who in government signed off on this stuff? Now we get the new manly ferries. Can you believe this? They're not seaworthy. That is, they're actually manly ferries, but they can't get to manly. <laughs> and they're also cracking. 
As I understand it, the ferries can't go near North Head because the ocean swell is too large. These are the new Manly ferries, allegedly replacing the older ferries. And guess what? I understand the windows on the so-called new ferries can't be opened, but there's no air inside. Governments think our money is monopoly money. Who signed off on this absolute incompetence? But hang on. What about the new ferries to Parramatta? This is a beauty. Built and delivered, except that they're too large and can't fit under the bridges on the Parramatta River. Come on, don't laugh. When the ferries get to the Meadowbank Bridge, passengers are asked to move downstairs because the ferries can't fit under the bridge if there are passengers on the top. They get their heads chopped off. Now, I know the conventional wisdom is to treat Gladys as a princess, and she undeniably had many political strengths, but she made her reputation as the Minister for Transport, and this happened on her watch. And only today I learnt that out of the blue, the 389 bus to Bondi has changed its route. No consultation with the locals. Go to catch the bus that's up there. And it raises a simple question, doesn't it? Is there anything that governments do that doesn't carry with it the hallmark of incompetence and waste. Well, I think appropriately, in the light of what I've just said, that my first interview on Alan Jones' Direct to the People, for free, by the way, no charge, should be with the newly minted New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet. I should say I have been inspired by the fact that in the last 12 months, my content on digital platforms like Facebook and YouTube, and now you'll be able to get it on podcast, it's been viewed by millions of people here and overseas. I've just spoken about whether or not Australia today is the kind of Australia we want it to be. Central to the concern is, as I said, traditional freedoms and values have been cast aside. Remember all that negative discussion when Dominic Perrottet was elected to the leadership of the Liberal Party in New South Wales about how many children he had. He was a real family man, but somehow the traditional values of the family were being weaponised. Should someone with six children be trusted? When in fact Dominic Perrottet represents the Australia that Australians want. A normal contented family battling all the problems of education, cost of living, the balance between work and home. A Premier grappling with everything that other families have to address. Add to that, of course, his explicit Christianity at a time when many of our Christian values are being erased from public education. I don't think the public support of Dominic Perrottet is actually related to his policies. I'll come to that in a moment. But rather, here's a young man with a big and happy family wanting to serve, to give to society, to treat others as you want to be treated yourself. I've said before that what stands out to me are two statements that Dominic Perrottet made before he became Premier. One of them in his maiden speech. Both of these statements address the issue that I've already raised tonight. Are we the Australia we want to be? And the answer is emphatically no. And we're going to have to prosecute successfully urgent change to reclaim our country from those who would seek and are seeking to change its values and the validity of its institutions. In his maiden speech, Dominic Perrottet said, I agree with Churchill when he calls the socialist model the equal distribution of poverty, not wealth. I oppose plans, he said, for more social engineering, more welfare handouts and the continued obsession with our rights at the expense of our responsibilities. Premier Perrottet on that philosophy seems to be a bit of a lone voice. Think of those words, I oppose plans for more social engineering, more welfare handouts and the continued obsession with our rights at the expense of our responsibilities. Well, 
Consider that across the country, employers can't find workers, but the latest Department of Social Services data shows 988,391 Australians are receiving job seeker and youth allowance payments. That's nearly a million, and employers can't find workers. Could it be related to the handing out of $750 a week to everyone during coronavirus? Hard-working Australians are shaking their heads. Well then, Dominic Perrottet is on record as saying, in relation to freedom, it is not the government's role to provide freedom. People born in this country by default are free. And he talked about, he doesn't swear, but he did say, opening the bloody country up. Well, the New South Wales Premier, Dominic Perrottet, joins us for the first time on this program. Premier, thank you for your time. I can assure you your voice will be heard over the modern digital platforms by hundreds of thousands of people. Can you confidently say this is the Australia we want Australia to be? Well, I think, Alan, the, the society we have today has been built on freedom and many sacrifices of the people that have gone before us. Uh, many people have given their lives to provide for the opportunity and prosperity that we have today, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. And the moment that we do, uh, will be a very, we'll leave our country in a poor state going forward. Good and on you. you know, I'm still, I still get shocked today that yes, I know we've everyone across our state and country has made enormous sacrifices to keep people safe during this pandemic, but there are still so many commentators, uh, politicians, and and members of the public who would still prefer us to be. Um, locked down um, in circumstances uh, where there is no where there is no need. Hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, you you said, didn't you? It's not the government's role to provide freedom. People born in this country by default are free. And as you're saying, we're not really. We're not yet completely free. Will we ever get there? Yeah, we will. I, I, I've, I, certainly, my position in New South Wales is we will get there. And. It is the default position. Freedom is the de default position. Government should only be coming in in circumstances where there is a high risk um, to, to people's lives and make tough decisions. And I've been part of some of those difficult decisions um, over the course of the time of the pandemic and even before that. And sometimes we haven't always got it right. Um, I think if you take a step back, we have had some, you know, there, is, there has been some uh, substantial success here in our country in terms of keeping people safe and opening up and having a stronger economy. But, but we need to have the focus being, well, it's not the government's role to intervene. It's the government's role to get out of the way and allow society to flourish. Oh, music to our ears, that cheering. Can you emphatically say that the day of lockdowns and masks are over? Well, that's certainly my intention. Uh, we had a compact, um, Alan, with the people of our state uh, based on the health uh, information we received in terms of vaccinations that once we got to a certain point, we wouldn't need to go back. Now, obviously, there'll be different variants at points in time, but certainly from my perspective... Uh, if there are issues, my focus is not on the on the um, case numbers. It's it's on the yes. ICU and, and hospital presentations. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think coming out every single day and saying here are the case numbers, oh. I believe can instill fear mm. in the community. Definitely. What we need to, to do is shift the focus from case numbers to what's most important, and that is the ICU presentations and hospital presentations. Mm. And I think we've successfully done that in, in our state. I'm, I want to be a Premier that is instilling hope, optimism and confidence on, in yeah. our people. And there'll always be a balance. And if we need to tailor things from time to time based on the health circumstances, health circumstances, though, meaning substantial risk to people's lives, we will. But people have gone out in enormous numbers and been vaccinated. Our compact with them as a government was that we would open up. And people have lost their jobs. People have had their businesses 
close. And I think we need to understand that it hasn't just been a health crisis. It's a mental health crisis, an economic crisis too. And for people who are in secure jobs, who, um, who are in the public service, who might be on a retired pension, should also remember that there are people that live day to day, week to week, uh, based on their business being, their small business being open. And when I go on my runs down through Sydney Harbour here, I feel incredibly sorry for some of these small little cafe owners or souvenir shops who have somehow survived through the last 18 months. Mm. Uh, they need to sell uh, their products to provide for their families and put food on the table. So I certainly don't want to go backwards. Good on you. It's marvellous to hear those, that language. The Constitution, it says trade, commerce and intercourse among the states should be absolutely free. So do we rip up the Constitution? I mean, the High Court didn't strike down interstate border closures. Our national government wasn't prepared to defend the Constitution. What level of trust can we place in politicians? I mean, in September, your predecessor, Gladys Berejiklian, said, we'll be seeing things unfold before our eyes that we've not seen before in Australia because of the pandemic. You just talked about putting fear rather than hope into people. What were those things that were supposed to happen and didn't? Well, I think we're pretty lucky, Alan, in my view. We're, we're pretty lucky. I mean, if you look through every generation in our country, they've always had their challenges. Uh, we had you know, tens of thousands of people uh, die, young men die in the First World War and also die in the Second World War. Uh, we had um, thousands die from the Spanish flu. Uh, every generation has its challenges and people have made enormous sacrifices to, to, to get our country to the place that it is. And I think we have an obligation to reflect on and look back at those sacrifices. Do you, do you think and you can... Do you, sorry, Dominic. Do you think you can win this battle to instil hope, instil hope, rather than despair across Australia? It's so critical right now, isn't it? Yes, I do. And, you know, it's like when you... you know, as a politician, you, you get polling about where the public is. Um, and I think we saw this in the era of Kevin Rudd where all of a sudden the politicians outsource their thinking to the focus group. Well, as I said, if you, if you were Moses taking people from the promised land and you ask them every single day, do they want to keep walking? They'd probably say no. Um, <laughs> your, 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 role, your role as a leader is to look at the advice that comes through, but, but then make the decision that you believe is the right decision. And the public may disagree with you from time to time, but the way to build hope and confidence and instill that in, in, in our people is to do what is right, believe what is right, and articulate clearly why we are making those decisions. When you move around, do you get the impression that people really feel badly about the erosion of our freedoms and the attacks on your institutions? Now, do you get that feeling from people? They've had enough. There's no longer political capital out there for lockdowns and negative talk. I think there is a real sense on the ground, Alan, particularly here in New South Wales, that people want to feel yep. that hope. They yep. feel that optimism yep. coming into what I think is going to be a very bright summer. We've done it very tough for the last 18 months. People have made sacrifices, substantial efforts to put us in this position. And uh, we need to move forward now because the impact that it ha it's having, uh, if we continue the, the, uh, we continue to lock down, the impact on many businesses, on many people, uh, will be will be absolutely terrible. And we've Give, made the efforts. Let's let's get let's there. Get Given your stated philosophical position, I mean, how do you respond? And I know you, we've got reshuffles coming up and so on. That in New South Wales schools, there is proof 
that indoctrination has overtaken education, that Christianity isn't in the vanguard of teaching. Nothing seems to have been done. W will your ministerial reshuffle address this sort of issue? Well, when it comes to education, I gave a speech a couple of weeks ago where I said, as Premier, I certainly want education to be a focus. And as a father of many young children, you know, I, I look at the, the education standards nationally and see that we're falling behind the rest of the world in many aspects. And we've already conducted the first tranche of the, um, the education reforms here, and that was for kindergarten to year two, to go back to, would you believe, reading, writing and arithmetic. Mm. I mean, that is, they are the basics that should not be forgotten. So education reform... But just to interrupt you, Premier, how can you prove that what you want is actually happening in the classroom? Well, um, what you'll see over this period of time, Alan, is that education reform will be a key focus for me. I believe our education minister has really started that work. She's had an outstanding job. You know, I, I want to make sure that uh, the education system is focused purely on educational outcomes for our kids. And that's getting back to the basics, to mm. reading, writing, maths, to learn the classics. Mm. Even when I was leaving high school in year 12, and that was in around, that was two, 2000, and there, there was, I already sensed a shift away from yes. the classics. Yes, we yes. did Shakespeare, uh, but, but there was already a movement away into mm. other areas, into yes. other novels that weren't substantive novels that would actually drive yeah. um, that interest and that creative flourishing yes. in see, our students. See, John Howard said exactly what you're saying more than 20 years ago, and yet here you and I are discussing the fact that it hasn't taken place. I mean, one corollary of this, I addressed a fundraising dinner a couple of weeks ago, and I asked if there was anyone in the room who wasn't frightened of saying what they thought, who wasn't frightened of saying what they thought. Not a hand went up. Are we a nation that's being dumbed down into silence, that we're even frightened to speak what we think and what we feel? I think it's got a little better, but I remember just about five years ago, or um, probably five, ten years ago, that I thought this was a real issue. Yes. And free speech, free speech is crucial yeah, to yes. a progressive, flourishing society. And, you know, when I was at university campus, I thought... Uh, and that, 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 that's the bastion of this. And, and, I, and I, I certainly thought that, that was the case back then. We had great, robust political, philosophical debates. But over time, that has been eroded. Now, I think that's coming back a bit. But you can't shout people and exclude them from the public square. What we need to have is a society where all different views um, are respected um, and, and, and appreciated. And that's what a truly tolerant society is. So, yes, we should have free speech. It should be a fundamental principle. And, and it's a concern that people don't believe that they can express themselves yes. um, without being excluded yes. from the public square. That, that's not how a great society uh, exists. A great society exists. Outstanding. Speak, speak Out their mind oh, and, are respect, and are respected for doing so. Out, outstanding stuff. I just wish five or six other people around the country would say that. You see, when you look at the polls, Dominic Perrottet, you see that two-thirds of the people polled don't want either political party because the public feels that the political system doesn't represent their interests or, you know, their ambitions or their concerns. I mean, how? That's the issue, isn't it? Out there, people are thinking, well, you might be talking... We're not listening. I hope they're listening to you, by the way, because you're talking a hell of a lot of sense. But how does a young man like you turn this around? It's a massive job. Well, my job is to instil confidence in the Liberal Party as, as the party of middle Australia. Um, it goes back to Menzies that 
uh, of being the party of the forgotten people. And it's the hardworking men and women right across our state who don't have a lobby group supporting them. It's our job and my minister's job uh, as the, for the Liberals and the Nationals uh, to do that. And I believe that we are the party who should really rep be rep the, the representatives, not just of middle Australia, but also of the working class. Yes. Um, and, and I believe if we get back to the basics, exactly what uh, was the legacy of uh, former Prime Minister John Howard, then we'll be truly successful. And as the leader of the parliamentary liberal party that is my role to instill that confidence well look i, I know uh, to that, everybody across the state yeah it's wonderful to hear you say that I, I know that you're talking about ministerial changes and the cabinet reshuffle and so on could i just raise a couple of issues here with you planning seems to be more about obstructing people who want to build the new australia now there are people out there who keep telling me and i'm sure they're telling you that politicians and bureaucrats are getting in the way we could build more homes we could do more things but we're tied up with red tape are you going to emancipate these people, let people get on with the job of building homes, zoning land, letting it happen in planning? Well, and I think the planning system has been criticised in New South Wales for some time, but it has got a lot better. And I regularly, through my previous role in, in Treasury, as we were heading, obviously, to a difficult economic time, took a keen focus, probably for the first time in my political career, in the planning system. And tried to put a focus with the planning minister, Rob Stokes, on getting better outcomes and working with the councils to incentivise um, uh, the bureaucracy. It's not happening. I, I, think it's got, I think it's got better, but there's a lot more work. There's a lot more work to do. And I tell you, during the pandemic, you know, we removed a whole lot of red tape and regulation. This would have been red tape and regulation that if we'd, done, if we'd gone down that path before the pandemic, everyone would have said the world will end. Well, guess what? It didn't. No. And if government gets out of the way yes. and cuts red tape and regulation, it allows right. those businesses to flourish and do what they should be doing. Okay, so you said, right, and you said, you said, I agree with you, but you said about 20 months ago, you would sell Landcom. It's still there. Yeah. That's, that's, um, that's the ultimate <laughs> red tape. Oh, Landcom has a role to play, but certainly when it comes to the planning system um, and housing affordability, it's a crucial focus for my my government and uh, you'll see that going forward Alan that you know we've got so many young people these days as a conservative we want people to get into the housing market so they have something to preserve and to conserve um, and, and that they can then pass on in terms of wealth creation for their kids and, and the next generation so housing is crucial tax system is one side of the of, of the of the issue and the other side is the planning system and we're going to be focused on it Good on you. And just education, we talked about this before, but it is full of indoctrination. I've got parents writing to me about all sorts of things that are happening in schools, and you saw what happened in America for the governorship of Virginia. Once education became the issue, he's won in a state where the governor had been in Democrat hands for over 100 years. Uh, something's got to change here in the classroom, hasn't it? Well, education is crucial, um, Alan, to a, a, a young child's future success. And... That's, that's in terms of their ability to get a job, to provide for their families, their earning capacity. It's all linked um, to their educational outcome, and particularly at a very young age. So I've said that uh, in, in, the, in the speech I gave a week or two ago. It is front and centre for, uh, for me as, as Premier of the state. It's going to be a substantial area of reform, um, and everything's on the table to improve it. We've, had, we've made some headway, 
but it's a long way to go. Good on you. And just finally, Western Sydney, locked up for months and months and months with no proof that lockdowns achieved anything. In fact, people say Daniel Andrews uh, locked down when there were six cases in Melbourne, and that lockdown lasted for weeks and weeks, the fourth of them. Now there are thousands of cases, and he says we're a free state. I mean, what do you say to the people in Western Sydney who suffered abominably, and they are in the socio-economic group that can least afford the deprivations of lockdown? Well, thank you, and uh, th thank them for the efforts and sacrifices they've made and that we've got their back. And I know with Stuart Ayres, who's the Minister for Western Sydney, uh, Western Sydney is going to be crucial for us because th that, 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 that is exactly where Middle Australia is. That is going to be the focus and the heart of my government going forward. I don't want to see a tale of two cities. I set out a vision recently of six cities um, for our state. I want each of those cities to flourish and the suburbs off the back of those uh, to succeed as well. I'm going to have a substantial investment, not just in, may, in, in, in those major infrastructure projects so that people can get home to their families faster, but more importantly, in driving the beautification and livability um, of suburbs right across the state, but particularly focused um, on Western Sydney because we need to be investing in uh, sport, in arts, in culture, as well as the public transport, health and education, which we've been doing over the last 10 years as a government. Good on you. And just finally, you mentioned something before, and this is finally, and I'll let you go, but um, when Barry O'Farrell became Premier in 2011, in the first interview he did with me on the Monday following his election, I said to him, Premier, look, there are whole reputable people out there, they call themselves developers, but they're people who've built the city and they are wanting to address the housing crisis. They're shovel-ready, ready to go. He said, Alan, Alan, you just tell them to speak to Brad. Brad Hazard was the planning minister. Premier, they're still shovel-ready, 11 years on. What happens? Well, look, the developers shouldn't be seen as second-class citizens. That's the first point, because it's been, it's been the development industry and construction off the back of it yes. that's kept people in work and our economy strong leading into the pandemic. It's been the engine room of New South Wales, and I want to see that return. I, I must say, Alan, with the numbers that I've seen, I know it might, anecdotally it might not be the case, from, from, from your perspective, but the numbers that I've seen uh, over, over the last six months, substantial improvements have been made. Where we can do more, we will. And a strong planning system doesn't just drive jobs growth and economic growth, it also improves housing affordability to get young people into homes, and that's going to be a key focus of mine. Good on you. Look, it's wonderful to talk to you, and I, I don't want to indulge you inappropriately, but the, the philosophical position that you articulate really gladdens the hearts of many, many people. And you've got youth and on your side as well as scholarship. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your ideas. Have a wonderful Christmas with your family and we'll catch, we'll catch up again. You'll always be welcome on the program. People love to hear that sense of optimism and hope and that's exactly what we've got to do, eradicate the fear and despair. Lovely to talk to you, Premier. There is the Thanks, Premier. Alan. Merry Christmas. You too. Premier of New South Wales, Dominic Perrottet. And, of course, you can make your comments. Just go to the website. And if you want to make a comment on all of that, alanjones.com.au. We'll be back after the break. Well, thank you for being with us on this inaugural program. Now, one of the components of this, of course, is your say. And you can go to the website, alanjones.com.au, and put your comments down there. And I like to see them, and we'll actually share some of them. Some of the most interesting comments, I have to say, from my viewers and correspondents have come from politicians. One wrote... Thrilled with your news. Go for it. These are politicians. These are people, you see, who can't be heard either. They knock on the door. No one listens to them. Another one said, people are desperate for fulfilment of the basic universal human need 
to be heard. People are searching for supportive, honest voices who serve the people and who serve our nation. People are hungry. This is a politician writing to me. People are hungry for truth and factual data. Best wishes. Another said, congratulations on the new platform, Alan. Wonderful news. This is a politician. He said, it gives me hope that we're not yet dead in the water, unquote. Well, I wrote on my Facebook page last week about this ad blue crisis, and I'll look at that in just a moment, but politicians are asleep at the wheel when we're running out of urea, a central component in the fuel on which trucks run. No urea? The trucks won't start. I asked where was Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese on this issue, and I asked where were the answers? <laughs> well, just on this issue of urea, Meredith wrote, quote, tractors and trucks will stop. Food supply chains are under threat. How will that go down? You couldn't wreck this country anymore if you tried. Both sides of politics are totally incompetent and irresponsible. Susan writes again on Ad Blue and Urea, quote, it's not just trucks, Alan. We're loggers and our main harvesting machine uses Ad Blue. If you think you've got a timber shortage now, imagine what it'll be like if we can't cut the trees down or transport them, unquote. And June writes in relation to this new program here, Alan Jones, Director of the People, she says, good luck, Alan. What you're up against has been growing silently for 50 years. It's taken over so much of the Western democracies and is becoming stronger and stronger. I fear for the future of our children and grandchildren. Please use all your skills to enlighten and awaken the silent majority. Well, there you are. That's your say for tonight. But look, go to my website, alanjones.com.au, and you can have your say. Or on my Facebook page, Alan Jones Australia, I want to hear your views. Now, look, at a time of significant geopolitical instability around the world, with all eyes on China and an almost self-defeating preoccupation with abortive conferences on climate change, the crisis in American leadership should be viewed by the whole world with deep concern. Kamala Harris is the 57-year-old Vice President. She's now got a pitiful 28% approval rating. How this is a surprise is beyond belief. The first of the Democratic primaries to determine the Democratic presidential candidate is always the Iowa caucus. Kamala Harris didn't make it to Iowa in 2020. She admitted she didn't have the resources or the support to make her even remotely a presidential candidate, even in her home state of California. So here is a woman utterly unwanted by her own party in her candidature for the presidency, somehow becomes the vice president of the United States of America. And now a similar story is being told. The Democrats themselves are leaking to the corporate media about the total dysfunctionality of her office. Her longtime aide, Simone Sanders, has now left her role as senior advisor and chief spokesperson for Vice President Harris. That's not all. She is the second aide to announce her departure in less than a month. Joe Biden suffering from severe mental decline and his presidency has already tanked such that it's doubtful he would know today what he said yesterday. Only a couple of days ago, oh, this is awful, he's speaking in Kansas City and he can't remember the name of the mayor. Now, he can't believe this. And this bloke, Biden, actually said, under the leadership of mayors like, uh, you know, uh, uh, our mayor here, I mean, the bloke shouldn't be let outside. But it just gets worse and worse for Biden. Hunter Biden's scandals are now turning into a major headache for Biden and the Democrats, and inevitably, the free world. Everyone will recall that the corporate-controlled media and big tech shut down the Hunter Biden laptop scandal during the 2020 presidential campaign. The protection racket around Biden meant anything 
even big media sacrificing the truth was worth it to get Biden over the line. Well, now things might be about to change. The New York Times recently featured an article about Hunter Biden's dealings with a Chinese-based investment company. One report highlighting the fact, reported by the New York Times, of Hunter Biden's involvement in a deal for the Chinese Communist Party to acquire a cobalt mine located in the Congo. Now, cobalt's a component in the manufacture of batteries for electric cars. Get the drift? Well, now, Republicans are to ask what's happening with the Biden family's overseas business dealings, and Republicans Grassley and Johnson have released a report detailing Hunter Biden's ties to businessmen affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party. The Iowa Republican Senator Grassley is asking Democrats, quote, to use the same effort and energy that you exerted in the Trump-Russia investigation to expose the extensive ties between the communist Chinese regime and members of the Biden family, unquote. Republicans have gone further, actually, and demanded an investigation into Hunter Biden's shady overseas business dealings. Well, next year there are midterm elections. The Republicans are in great shape to retake Congress. Will the Democrats act before then? Will Kamala Harris be the first to go? The 25th Amendment, Section 2, specifies that, quote, whenever there's a vacancy in the office of the Vice President, the President shall nominate a Vice President who shall take office upon confirmation by a majority vote by both houses of Congress, unquote. Well, as things stand, the Democrats would be able to secure such a vote if Harris were to go because of her total lack of political support. Who would replace her? And if Biden doesn't last the distance, could he then be replaced by the replacement? Could that replacement be Hillary Clinton? Stranger things have happened. Let's get a little bit closer to home because, as you've heard, my central theme tonight is promoting the simple question, is Australia today the Australia we want it to be? I've always regarded, and so do my viewers, Senator Matt Canavan, the Queensland Senator, as one of the most formidable intellects in the federal parliament. Needless to say, in speaking truth and offering a different viewpoint, the rare politician makes enemies and indeed may well jeopardise his future in the short term. My optimistic view is that the Canavans of this world will in the end prevail. It was only last week Matt Canavan issued a statement which said, in part, quote, I don't come to Canberra to make friends. I come here to fight for our jobs and our livelihoods. He said, there are lots of Canberra people who want to shut down our cattle, coal, cotton and other industries. Thousands of jobs will be lost if they get their way. He said, others want to take away our cars and guns. Said Matt Canavan, early this year, a coal-fired power station in central Queensland exploded. It was a freak accident and fortunately there's no loss of life or injuries. But he said, thousands of people lost power immediately. Over the coming months, he said, while the power station was taken offline as a precaution, Queensland recorded its highest ever electricity prices. But then this critical point, the explosion in Queensland was unplanned but within a year, we will start the planned closure of coal-fired power stations right across Australia. The aftermath, he said, of this year's explosion shows that we are not ready. Well, this program will unapologetically promote and foster common sense. Matt Canavan is simply too smart for some of the dunderheads occupying political benches. He said, and I quote, building coal-fired power stations is not inconsistent with a net zero emissions goal. 
four countries that have signed up to net zero emissions are building 129 coal-fired power stations right now. China's building 95 of them, despite saying they'll meet net zero emissions, unquote. And as Senator Canavan rightly says, over time, we should look to build reliable power stations that have lower emissions. We should research hydrogen, battery and other technologies, but none of these technologies can work at scale today. He went on, one low emissions technology that does work is nuclear. Of the top 20 nations in the world, only Australia doesn't have a nuclear power station or doesn't use nuclear power imported from another country. Our status, he says, as a nuclear outcast is the more remarkable given that Australia has the largest uranium reserves in the world, unquote. Well, thankfully, this program will take people like Matt Canavan to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of viewers here and internationally. He joins us from Queensland. Matt Canavan, thanks for your time. Look, just simply, what kind of energy madness is seeking to overtake us? Well, you can simply put this madness, uh, Alan, into the example where we send our energy resources to the world but refuse to use them ourselves. We send uh, the world's best coal, uh, the world's, world's best gas, we're the biggest gas exporter now, the world's best uranium uh, to other countries for them to make stuff. And then we buy back uh, the more expensive goods uh, because they're processed, they're manufactured. We have to buy them back on our credit card, our nation's credit card, to just make do in, in the way you need to in modern life, to, to have cars, to, uh, to, to have oil, uh, all these types of things when we could actually make more of this stuff here. Uh, and uh, I think we should be making stuff here again in Australia from our own natural resources that God has blessed us with, uh, rather than simply let other countries do all that. I'm all for exports and we've got so much stuff. We can share it with the world too, but there is so much more we could do here, so much more manufacturing we could do if we just kept more of it here for our own use. But see, Matt, the public who are listening to you now say, well, what choice do we have? Because both major parties seem to be singing off the same sheet of music. Net zero emissions, no approval for new coal-fired power stations. But as you said, wind energy takes up to 250 times more land than nuclear power. Solar takes up 150 times more land. So are the green activists who'll give their preferences to Labor not about changing the climate but changing the politics? Well, you still do have a choice, Alan, and ultimately you've got a choice between uh, a Labor Party is beholden to the Greens and they last week have announced a new carbon tax. They've hidden it in their policy. It's going to be a tax on 215 businesses around the country, mainly our mining and manufacturing, what's left of our manufacturing industry, uh, and, and run that into the ground if you vote the Labor Party. And yes, there are lots of other parties on the right, on the right side of politics, but uh, ultimately, I'd argue, you've got to put those Labor and Greens guys last and also get behind and support those people within the Liberal and National parties, uh, like myself, who are unashamedly pro-Australian, who unashamedly want to see... Uh, more little yellow kangaroos hanging off goods in our local stores. Uh, that's, that's an agenda we can get behind. And the more support those people give uh, to, to members and candidates uh, within the Liberal National Party, the stronger it'll be. I'm not alone there in Canberra, Alan. I, 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 yes, I don't go to Canberra to make, to make friends. Um, I'm back home now. I was allowed back to Queensland. And all I care about is my family and, and yes. friends here. That's who I care about. But I do have some friends in Canberra who are joining me. <laughs> especially in the Nationalist Party, where the Nationalist Party in the Senate, we are moving. Mm. Uh, we are moving amendments to remove the prohibition on nuclear energy uh, because that's what we believe in. And I know many um, Liberal and even Labor members support us on that move. So we've just got to have the public support on that. And 
where the public goes, eventually the politicians will go too. Good, well done. Well, look, you made a very valid point. You said there was a reason President Xi of China didn't attend the Glasgow summit. Your words, he wouldn't be able to keep a straight face while the woke West commits collective economic suicide. And you said this is the wrong time to be handing the Chinese Communist Party an industrial advantage. But that's precisely what we're doing. Absolutely, Alan. I mean, Glasgow was a complete flop and fast. We all saw that. It was the best comedy on TV for some time. <laughs> I, I do actually kind of miss it. But, but uh, in terms of where it's put the Western world, the woke Western world, it's been an absolute disaster because as soon as Glasgow was over, uh, senior Chinese government officials were there saying and announcing that they're building more coal-fired power stations. It was revealed that China's building over 100 nuclear power stations that they'd kept secret and hidden from the rest of the world. Uh, and so we can all see in front of us this challenge that, that China presents. And it's not me scaremongering about this. Our no. defence officials yeah. are saying that we could end up in a conflict even possibly Quite. sometime well, soon. And if that's the case, why aren't we bringing more manufacturing jobs back correct. to Australia? Correct. Why are we continuing to sell out our future to other countries and not protect ourselves first. Now, look, just on this issue of Glasgow and climate change, what has passed with no debate or comment anywhere were the comments of the British Chancellor's Rishi Sunak. Now, he's a 41-year-old, born in Southampton, Punjabi Hindu parents. They immigrated from East Africa. He's got degrees from Oxford University and from Stanford. He's a Fulbright scholar, so not stupid. Now, that Glasgow conference, he pledged, he didn't urge, pledged that the gathered politicians, quote, rewire the entire financial system for net zero. So if all else fails, make the financial world achieve what Glasgow couldn't. Matt Canavan, why aren't the public told that financial institutions have now signed up to a Glasgow financial alliance for net zero and they hold assets worth over $130 trillion and yet you've got this academically smart young man describing an historic wall of capital for the net zero transition around the world? I mean, what do, you, what do you make of that? Well, I think for, for, for Rishi, uh, he has to seek to distract and hide the inadequacies of uh, his own departments. He's the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the UK Treasury that he's in charge of released some modelling during Glasgow, which was woefully inadequate. It didn't actually... Uh, um, it wasn't allowed to, apparently, if you read, wasn't allowed to put down the total cost of reaching net zero. What it did reveal is that a carbon tax would need to be imposed of over 200 Australian dollars uh, to reach net zero. And that's what these financial markets are, are licking their lips at. Uh, our banks and our but, financial markets are licking their lips yes, at but, the prospect of a massive new carbon trading scheme but, but they've uh, gone for, that will but, mean more bonuses and profits for them. But, Matt, they've gone further than that. I mean, that Mark Carney, the former governor of the Reserve Bank in England, said in October 2019, firms that align their business models to the transition to a net zero world will be rewarded handsomely those who fail to adapt will cease to exist. So does this mean that the farmer wanting to buy a new harvester for $750,000 will have to prove his commitment to net zero emissions? That's the road we're heading down, Alan. I mean, I see it already in my part of the world in central Queensland where many businesses, small family businesses, are being told they have to, they will not get finance if they have a certain exposure to the coal industry. So that's happening primarily at the moment in mining services businesses. Now, the banks, when you question them, deny that it will ever extend to farmers. But we've seen this before, Alan, that that's where it will go. Uh, the next step, once they knock off the mining industry and the small businesses that rely on that, they'll go for the farmers and other people as well because they don't like the methane emissions that cattle, uh, cattle produce. Uh, and if we want to deny 
these uh, our new overlords that are based in the city in London or Wall Street. We want to deny them to uh, their ability to rule ourselves. We need to stand up now. Definitely. And that's Definitely. why we need to look at things like the fair banking rule in the United States, where if an activity is legal, uh, it should be a requirement of having a banking licence in this yes. country that you, you provide services to. Yeah, because... That doesn't mean you have to lend to everybody. You've, no. of course, got to make a risk-based no. decision on a particular business, but you shouldn't be able to redline, if you like, yes. entire in legal industries just because you have Absolutely. a certain level of moral But that's what they're aiming to, to do. I mean, laws of this country. I mean, these so-called financial institutions are playing this ideological game with our deposits, our superannuation funds. Well, it's, it's worse than that too. They're, they're taking over our democracy. Yes. They're putting themselves in effectively a legislative position here, saying, well, we get to decide what's effectively kosher and not uh, in society. They're unelected. Some, and most of them are only, don't even live in Australia. And it goes to this broader agenda of how we need to get our sovereignty back. We need to get our sovereignty back by bringing back manufacturing, being, being self-sufficient. But we also need to get our sovereignty back by making sure we reinvest in the democratic institutions that are the right ones for this nation. And that means that people who live overseas, you don't get a say in what we do. The people who get a say in what Australia does should be Australians. Uh, and they express that at the ballot box every year. Yes, I, I know, but I mean, none of this is discussed in the National Parliament. None of this is raised with the public. This is happening behind the scenes. And these ideological zealots are talking about all this stuff with money that comes from taxpayers and consumers. Now, surely if bank lending is predicated on meeting social and environmental goals, then we really have the makings of a financial crisis. We do, Alan. I, I think there's one extra component of that, though, you're right to say a lot of this is taxpayer funded, but it's further than that. It's also um, it's also financed through the printing press uh, that lots of this extra capital that we're seeing invest in the world in green energy is being financed and the taxpayer deficit that go with it. It's being financed with uh, the, the, um, the, the churn of the printing presses uh, around the world churning out more money. Yes. We've had 15% growth in our money supply since the coronavirus here in Australia. In the US, it's even been higher at 15% a year and uh, I do think the wisdom of, uh, of the famous econom economist Milton Friedman holds that inflation is everywhere and anywhere a monetary phenomenon. If you print more money, you're Quite. going to lose the Quite. value of that currency. Yes. And that's what we're seeing on mass here as inflation hits record levels mm. in the United States. That's it. And the people that get the most by inflation are poor families yes. who can't afford the rising costs of food Absolutely. and energy that will come in an inflationary crisis. Undeniable. The inflation I mean, is, just another, is just a tax by but, another name but I mean, you're for those poor you're families, and you're, that's what's coming down our, our road. But you're saying that and no-one else is saying it. I mean, you've got the ANZ Bank, who refused, who refused earlier to keep funding the port of Newcastle, which is the world's largest coal export port, under its climate change policy. I mean, banning loans to the coal sector and ANZ Bank. And the... the well, it's, our one of, it's, our, it's, our, it's one of our biggest ports in the country, not just yes. in the world. It's, uh, I mean, it's a bit smaller than some of the iron ore ports over there in the West, but it's a massive tonnage, a huge strategic asset. One, which I should say that half of the port is owned by firms connected to the Chinese government now, which is a whole other story. Uh, and then you've got our own banks finishing the job, saying that they won't, uh, they won't uh, lend to it. Uh, and it goes back here to the problem yep. we've got in corporate Australia, Alan, where if you go into yes. most yes. Uh, large corporate businesses in this country, you will find more rainbow flags flying yes. than Australian yes. flags. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is a great sadness to me, given the history of corporate Australia has played in building our nation. Giants of the past, like yes. Essington Lewis, the head of BHP, yes. uh, people who helped build this country uh, were patriotic about it. Yes, they were businessmen. Yes, they were profit-seeking. They had to 
do the best interest of their shareholders. But they were also proud Australians and proud Australians first. And they, they knew through war and depression the importance of putting your own country first. Absolutely. I think that's something we've lost in this, yep. in this period of decadence yep. almost, if you like, where in the last few decades in my generation, we haven't experienced large recessions. We had a large one last year, but the government came along and actually made everybody, gave everybody more money. Mm. Uh, so we really haven't felt the mm. deprivations that previous generations no. have and, and, and if the and if, therefore are forgetting the importance of our nation. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, if the financial system is going to be doing the heavy lifting for net zero, we've got a formula for financial ruin. Just before you go, Urea. Now, everything that grows the economy on any given day relies on trucking. 16 diesel trucks are described as the lifeblood of Australia. 17, almost yep. everything we buy, spend some time on the road. We're told the trucking networks could grind to a halt. I noticed the government couldn't give an answer only three days ago, four days ago, as to whether the supply is adequate. There's a looming shortage. What can you do to update us? Where are we? Well, we have been distracted, Alan. I raised this issue of urea while Glasgow was on a month ago and uh, the last urea manufacturing plant in, in Australia, in Brisbane, announced that it was closing next year. And I raised the alarm bell then that this is a major issue, as you say, for our transport sector. It's also the most commonly used fertiliser for food production in Australia. And we wouldn't be able to feed ourselves on this dry continent if not for fertilisers like urea. It's a major national security issue. And look, this week the government has announced a task force to uh, look into the shortages. We apparently may run out of urea as early as next February. That's uh, very scary. But you have to ask the question here, why have we been so focused on 2050 when apparently we couldn't even guarantee energy security in 2022? Uh, that surely should be the highest priority. High priority should be, highest priority should be tomorrow. I want to make sure my family is fed next week. Um, yes, it's important to also put away for your superannuation, your retirement, but there's not much point putting away for your retirement if you're not even going to get there. Uh, so we need to make sure we get back to the here and now in this country, protect ourselves. Um, we probably will be able to get urea from some other sources like Japan, the Middle East, but we're going to be much, much less secure now because we're shutting down our last urea plant. And I should end, Alan, here. Urea, it's very important for people to understand, urea is made from gas. So we can go talking around hydrogen and batteries and all this other stuff. You can't make the most important fertiliser in this country without fossil fuels, without gas. And so if we turn our back, on traditional forms of energy like coal and gas and oil, uh, we really are risking our own ability to feed ourselves. Amazing. It's wonderful to talk to you. Close your ears while I talk to our viewers. How good a Prime Minister would this bloke make? On top of the issues, listening and talking to people. Matt, always good to talk and we'll talk again. Keep delivering the big doses of common sense. Lovely to talk to you. And Matt Canavan, we'll talk to him often. I'll be back after the break. Well, thank you for being with us. Now, look, just before we go, since I last spoke to you, we've been swamped with everything about electric and hydrogen cars. Indeed, the people don't count. Have you been consulted? Have any of us? We're going to have, apparently, a road revolution, electric and hydrogen-driven cars. Can someone tell us who'll establish the charging stations? How much will the subsidies cost to achieve this electric and hydrogen revolution? Where will reliable energy come from when diesel, gas and coal are taxed out of existence and nuclear energy is banned? Yes, electric hydrogen cars will reduce suburban noise and, I dare say, improve air quality. Though, do you have a problem with air quality at the moment? Shouldn't users fund their own recharging centres? Or is government going to say, like, vaccinations? Oh, hang on, we're mandating this. Therefore, they'll be compulsory and the government will then fund the recharging centres. More of your money. 
Surely we can't, we can't possibly be serious in all this. I mean, with just a sprinkling of common sense, isn't it valid to say that this mad rush to abandon coal and petroleum fuels together with all their engines, their generators and their supply chains is not only a mammoth undertaking, it's a mammoth risk. And are Australians seriously being told that without any consultation with us, the voter and the taxpayer, that the national government is going to head off and plan and fund and build a whole new transport network based on green energy, which is often not available or reliable? Electric engines, batteries, hydrogen, this is pure fantasy. We've had subsidised wind and solar mania for years now. It's cost us billions. Before that, we had Labor in their pink bats and cash for clunkers and building the education revolution. Now we're going to have foisted upon us an electric hydrogen highway. Well, the voter must emphatically oppose this nonsense until a clear cost-benefit analysis is available. At the moment, we're talking about technology that doesn't even exist. I'm urging you tonight to dismiss all of this. It is pure fantasy pandering to the left. Now, madness may have overtaken our politicians. It must not overtake our voters. Which brings me to the thought for the night. It was Mark Rubin who once said, sometimes I feel certain that even the hyenas are laughing at us. Well, that's it from me on my first night. Look, it's all there on the website, alanjones.com.au or on my Facebook page, Alan Jones Australia. And a podcast of tonight's program will be available on the website at 6am tomorrow. I'll see you then when we'll do it all again. Good night.